0: Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. Hello and welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast brought to you by the Bonson Group. I am David Bonson, the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. And what we want to do at Advice and Insights is give you advice and provide our insights on a particular subject near and dear to your heart as an investor. And this week it is one of the most exciting topics known to mankind that is the Federal Reserve and particularly this week I'm gonna talk about the Federal Reserve's response to the financial crisis ten years ago Um, now a lot of people may be laughing right now saying this is not very exciting and that's true it can be a bit dry or boring I'm gonna try to make it not that however you cannot understand the financial crisis of 2008 you cannot understand investing in 2018 and 19 I mean this very seriously if you don't have an understanding of the Fed's response what it meant, what it reflects, how it is uh, relevant today. And and I think a greater historical, not to mention ideological, understanding of the Fed in 2008 and, and 2009 is going to prove to be very important. Well, let me start right there because I said 2008, 2009. And I think you could pull most people that are somewhat financial markets interested. Say, what's the biggest uh, post-crisis, Uh, relevance to the Federal Reserve, and they're going to point to this thing called quantitative easing, QE. And you've heard QE1, QE2, QE3. What those were were three different rounds of what is called bond buying or asset buying, where the Fed essentially was, as the central bank, buying bonds, generally treasury bonds, but also mortgage-backed securities, which was new and uh, completely revolutionary, and they were doing it with money that didn't exist. They were do- so, so that's where people get this idea of money printing. They think of it like a photocopier or, or you know a, pre- a, st- a printing press. But in this electronic and digital age, it essentially amounted to making money um, out of outer space. But it was not put in circulation. It sat on uh, banks, balance sheets, and excess reserves and was intended to be a tool to drive longer-term interest rates down and, and in fact, that's exactly what it did do. Um, now, it is theoretically inflationary if the money that they uh, created through the bond buying by their enhanced balance sheet worked its way into circulation. And that's a process we call velocity of money where uh, the money begins turning over. One person spends a dollar who, that person that, that they spent it with goes and spends it and that person spends it. So as you get this greater... Uh, demand activity in the economy you get a greater velocity and then that leads to a greater degree of inflation because that money works its way into circulation There's in excess reserves that's probably a mouthful but the point is is that those who were predicting that qe quantitative easing this really revolutionary tool that the federal reserve was using in the aftermath of the crisis those who were predicting it was ipso facto inflationary were probably well-meaning not even always that, but they were fundamentally flawed in their misunderstanding of how the velocity of money works. Well, all of that setup about QE was to say that I do not believe that uh, quantitative easing was the most profound, uh, immediate, and revolutionary aspect of Federal Reserve reaction to the financial crisis. In fact, I'm going to argue that the quantitative easing boldness was a byproduct of um, a a totally different uh, set of activities that uh, revealed a changing of the guard, a paradigm shift um, in monetary policy in our country. The Federal Reserve has this thing in the Humphrey-Hawkins Act called the dual mandate. Um, I'm somewhat critical of it, but it is the law of the land where essentially the central bank is tasked with the dual mandate of a sound dollar, which I'm all for, and full employment, which I'm also all for. I don't see full employment as a task of a monetarist, as a task of, of a central bank. Um, however, I do believe that those two policies have the potential to be uh, politicized and they have the potential to be conflicting and that a good and prudent use of a central bank would be to focus on the reliability, soundness, strength, stability of the currency and so i think that you're sort of embedding into the central bank um a uh, potential for great skew by having this dual mandate well no one cares what i think about that so within the reality of a dual mandate um one of the expressions that gets thrown around a lot is that the central bank was created to be a lender of last resort and i think there's significant uh, legitimacy to that uh, in the early 20th century, the advent of the Federal Reserve came about with a couple of financial panics that took place in the late uh, 19th century and in the very, very, very early 20th century. Um, and it became deemed, uh, it was deemed necessary to have a lender of last resort that the central point could be could be to provide short-term liquidity when there was adequate collateral at high term, at high level interest rates Uh, to banks and other depository institutions, uh, other financial institutions that were necessary to the lubrication of capital markets in our country. Well, um, that objective existed long before 2008. However, the term auction facility, the primary dealer credit facility, the term securities lending facility, the commercial paper funding facility, the asset-backed commercial paper money market mutual fund liquidity facility, the money market investor funding facility, and the term asset-backed securities loan facility. None of those things existed. I didn't make any of those up. The These are, now, now in fairness, actually a couple of those did, but they had not been used. The They were functions out of the discount window, so like the term auction facility. But all of those latter mentioned, um, Uh, tools were instruments that the Federal Reserve expanded in their toolbox, mechanisms um, above and beyond open market operations to try to keep credit markets functioning. Uh, Yes, they were designed to put um, liquidity in the marketplace. Generally, their open market operations, such as where they set interest rates um, and where they're buying and selling bonds, um, would be putting, you know, different desired pressures on interest rates. Um, However, this was above and beyond anything we'd ever seen before. Uh, We will always talk about their uh, desire to sort of manipulate the interest rate to stimulate economic activity and provide feasibility for stretched and leveraged borrowers um, as a big aspect of what they were doing. And I would argue it had a lot of merit to it and I would argue it it, it builds a lot of danger. I think that when you alter the price of money, you inevitably forfeit some price discovery and that there's no precedent I've studied in history where that doesn't eventually lead to what we call malinvestment, bad decision-making, because the optics were skewed and therefore the decisions become skewed and end up with bad investment decisions made by various economic actors, not just mom and pop investors like us. But see, in this case, you're not even just talking about the distortion of asset markets, uh, whether they're you know even understanding the kind of good intentions behind it. What they did here was actually create liquidity directly to borrowers and investors. Corporations having a commercial paper funding facility was never something in, in, envisioned in the Federal Reserve mandate. Uh, but the Fed deemed it necessary to keep a sound currency, back to that mandate, to have this liquidity vehicle uh, available because so many investors were tapped into money markets. The notion of breaking a buck of $1 being worth less than $1 in a money market was incomprehensible. And indeed, that is what happened after Lehman Brothers' failure. And so it was necessary to get very aggressive uh, with the Fed's you know, desire to restore normalcy in the capital markets. Now, why do you think that with all the focus on TARP, uh, that was um, a bailout package that passed by Congress, administered by the Treasury Department, where money was injected directly into Wall Street banks, why do you think that got so much political hay, understandably of course, and, and credit facilities, liquidity facilities designed to inject money into money markets and commercial paper and other such borrowers did not. Well, I don't think people can understand it. I don't think it was simple. I don't think it had the ring to it of Wall Street bailout. Um, so it just did not have political uh, skin in the game. But the fact of the matter was it was every bit as much aggressive and unprecedented of an intervention as anything else that we have talked about today. So when you then look at the Fed keeping the zero uh, the interest rate at zero for as long as they did, effectively about seven years plus change, and, and then another year beyond that before they even really altered after a quarter point. So you're talking about seven, eight, nine years at a very, very, very unprecedented low interest rate, most of it at zero. Then you look at the quantitative easing, adding about $4 trillion to their balance sheet. What you get was a very aggressive and accommodative and um, eager Federal Reserve to uh, to stimulate and accommodate the needs of a very bruised economy. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that all of the actors involved believe they're doing the right thing, it was necessary. They're arguing from different ideologies, different foundations, and interpreting data differently and then drawing different conclusions from the data and, um, so my point is not to be one of the cranks that views the Federal Reserve as an inherently evil institution, but more to comment that there is a good and bad behind these decisions. There's no free lunch in economic decision-making. And I think that we will see through time if some of those decisions ended up perhaps altering markets in a way that could create um, a hangover effect. That, that is very much, I think, something people need to take seriously. But more than anything else, we have to look to these different alphabet soup of facilities that were created as unprecedented aggressive interventions post-crisis that that, uh, ultimately, I believe, set a foundation that the Fed will not just be there to inject liquidity into depository institutions, but uh, across the whole broader economy. And will it ever be necessary again? God help us. I hope not. Would the Fed do it again if it were? Well, you can guess what the answer to that question is. So take it uh, for what it's worth. A little advice and insights today on how to think about the Federal Reserve and their own viewpoint of what they're called to do in the cases of uh, financial emergencies. Um, This is a new paradigm and one in which I think will have profound relevance to investors for years to come. Thank you for listening to David Bonson's Advice and Insights. And I'm going to ask you to, uh, if you're at all interested, check out marketepicurean.com as we're continuing through our 10-part series of short articles on the financial crisis and, you know, not celebrating but commemorating the 10-year anniversary of the crisis. Uh, Marketepicurean.com, series of articles there. Please check out. Subscribe to Advice and Insights, forward as you wish, Send this to all your friends who hate the Federal Reserve and have them email me to tell me how the Fed is a secret agency that is snuggling money to, smuggling money to bad actors and other crazy things like that. Um, actually, don't do that, okay? Thanks for listening to Advice and Insight. Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights
1: podcast with David L. Bonson. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.